Can I invite you to turn, please, for scripture reading to the first epistle of Peter, uh, chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, we're breaking in in verse 3 of the chapter. <clears throat> verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to his abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not yet believing, ye receive with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed, that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Amen. We're ending there at verse 12. We know the Lord will add his own blessing to the reading of his word. I invite you to turn, please, to the passage we were reading, 1 Peter chapter 1. And a few thoughts from the verse 12 of the chapter. 1 Peter 1 and 12, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. And it's this, this particular phrase I want to focus on, the closing phrase of the verse, which things the angels desire to look into. With God's word open before us, let's just unite our hearts for a moment in prayer. Please, as we seek his face for his help, and do pray, beloved, that the Lord would speak to your heart, every heart, even through this word. Our loving Father, we're so thankful this evening that even though we have been born in sin and shaped in iniquity, we rejoice to know it's not thy will that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. We ask thee, Lord, have thine own way in the hearts of men and women, young people, boys and girls, 
Oh, defeat every scheme of the adversary. We know, Lord, the devil would love to come and have our thoughts wander or cause some distraction. And we pray that thou, by thy Holy Spirit, would overrule, put the devil to flight. Surround this meeting with precious blood. Take this frail vessel of clay. Grant to us the infilling of thy Holy Spirit with wisdom. Make thy word to be heard. And we pray that there would be that response within hearts tonight. Dear souls for whom Christ died, recognize their need. Recognize the urgency of making ready to meet the Lord. And oh, that that grace might be given even this hour to close in with thine offer of mercy. Bless thy word now to that end, we pray of thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Angels are no doubt fascinating creatures, spirit beings, very powerful beings, it has to be said. We don't know exactly what they look like, although we imagine they must be made in the image of God, just as we are. In heaven, there's an innumerable company of these created beings. John speaks of them over in Revelation 5, verse 11, as numbering 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Now, my arithmetic's right. 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million, plus many thousands more. So there's a lot of angels employed in the service of God, perfect in their holiness, perfect in their service and worship to God at all times. Some of them are employed in looking after you and me. The child of God can rejoice in the words of the psalmist where he said, the angel of the Lord encampeth around about them that fear him. You're always in good company. Never feel alone. In Psalm 91, 11, he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. Isn't the Lord good? He looks after his own. There's another thought, of course, comes to mind. If you have a guardian angel, as we believe each one has, and that other person has a guardian angel, if you were to say something nasty about that one, do you not think one angel's going to report that to the other? Is that not going to cause a wee bit of ill will? What would teach us to watch our lips, wouldn't it? Isn't the tongue an unruly member? It can, it, it's in a, a tight, it, 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 what, what do they say? A loose tongue can often get its owner into a tight spot. It's true. Need to watch it. But he, here's the interesting thing. Those angels that inhabit eternity, they never sin. They never have sinned. Yet, in spite of our sin, and all our tendencies towards sinful practices, God has so set his love on us that he has gone to the absolute extreme to demonstrate that love by slaying his own son and raising him up again. He did that for you and me, and he never did that for the angels. However, whilst they are somewhat strange and 
interesting to us. We are likewise interesting to them. They're, they're, they're curious as to what God sees in us. Why didn't God go to such lengths to provide salvation for undeserving sinners as we are? This has got the, the angels wondering. What did God ever see in us? What did he ever see in me? Why was I ever born in a land that's steeped in the gospel? I could so easily have been born in some Muslim country, brought up under false religion, or some country where they've never heard any religion or any gospel. Why was I born here? I, I don't know. It's only maybe the Lord will explain that when he gets home to heaven. And I tell you, we are indebted, deeply indebted to Almighty God. And, and the angels are curious as to what the Lord ever saw in us. And th this is a point that Peter brings out in this chapter. He begins by recollecting that we, that is those who are saved, are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. These are puzzling things as far as the angels are concerned. The gospel of saving grace is something of a mystery to them. They probably can't understand what would drive God to so love men, men who hate him, to, to save them in, in the manner in which he does. I mean, think of, think of men like Saul of Tarsus, a man who spent his years going about persecuting those who belong to the Lord, hauling men and women out of their homes, putting them in prison, some even put to death. Imagine if he arrived at your door and you weed children in the house and mother and father are dragged out by Paul and his henchmen and the children are screaming, don't, don't, don't hurt mommy and daddy. And they're taken off and the children don't know where they're gone. And, and those people may be thrown in prison. And whoever liked could look after the wee ones. What sort of a God would stoop down and, and save a man like that? And again, the, the song of the redeemed in heaven is a song the angels can't sing. But they don't fully understand what redemption is. They, they don't know the experience. So the, these are things that there are things we can understand that they would want to look into. They're anxious to learn about matters that you and I take almost for granted. And for a moment or two, I want to look at a few simple things that might make them curious. Firstly, the cradle in the manger. We're approaching Christmas. Try and picture yourself as being in glory in the company of angels. They've never known anything but sweet bliss of that place. Places so pure, clean, holy, free from any defiling thing. There's not even a hint of sin in heaven. That's hard for us to visualize. Because no matter where you go on this earth, the sin abounds in every hand. But all the sounds of these beings ever hear are the sounds of praise. Praise to God Almighty resounding around the courts of paradise where all is light 
All is perfect. But imagine, imagine what a stir there must have been when they learned that God was going to send his own son down to earth to take upon himself human form and live among men. Why would he do that? Is, is, he going to, is it so that he can get to know his creation better? Sounds like a good idea. But then all those men and women down there on earth, don't they sin against their creator? Didn't Adam and Eve disobey God in the garden? I mean, when God says, don't touch the fruit on that particular tree, it was hard to understand. It's like putting a notice on a, a park bench, wet paint. You can be sure somebody will come along and stick his finger in to make sure it's, it's wet paint. Why did they disobey God? Simple command, don't touch. And of course they did. And God explains to them, he's sending his son down among men to die for them so that he can free them from their sin. This doesn't make sense to angels. Well, we know from God's word, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is for lasting life. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So the Bible says, James 1.15. doesn't make sense. Why, why would God do such a thing? And again, we've got to try and think like angels here. They're wondering, what sort of a scheme is this that God's planning? One minute, heaven is ablaze with light, glory. And the next minute, the light's shining on a wee cattle shed down there in Bethlehem. And the word goes around the streets of glory. Away in a manger. No crib for his bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the bright sky looked down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. Coming as, as king of kings. The only person who could choose where to be born chose a stable. Humbling, isn't it? Oh, this is something the angels got to look into. And so they did. Down and down, a host of them came and surrounded those Judean hills, desiring to look into what was transpiring on planet Earth. What do you suppose astonished them most about this great phenomenon? Is it not the fact that nobody seemed to care? So the heavenly host raised their voices and awoke those slumbering hills around Bethlehem, saying, Unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Glory to God in the highest. But you know, apart from a few shepherds out in the fields, nobody else seemed interested. Oh, it was a night of mixed emotion for the angels. For here was the one they knew as the Son of God, and now he's a tiny babe in arms. And his coming into the world in such a fashion is truly amazing. But then the disregard shown by the world, it leaves the angels aghast. And so they return to heaven. 
<laughs> you just imagine the conversation when they went back home and met their fellow angels. They saying, well, how did you get on? How, how did earth receive their Savior? Did people flock to see him? Did they have to curtail the crowds in case somebody get trumped in the crush? There were no such tidings. <laughs> Only a handful of people come out to see him, and they were shepherds who happened to be out in the fields looking after their sheep and saw the heavenly host in the sky above them. Why, there wasn't even a place where he and his mother and Joseph could find any place of, of comfort. They ended up in a stable. And no, Herod hasn't abdicated his throne to make way for the king. In fact, he's so mad he would like to see the child slain. Can you believe it? And they're thinking, is this, is this what sin has done to mankind? That they would so treat the Son of God? Angels are flabbergasted at the whole spectacle. God becomes man in order to save man from his sin. Yet man chooses to reject him, have nothing to do, no room for the Christ of God. It's no wonder the angels are curious. But there's another area that they might desire to look into. The conflict in the wilderness. Thirty years have passed since Christ came into the world giving us our first Christmas. He's been busy growing up through childhood, youth, manhood. No doubt thousands of books could have been written about all the wonders that he did during those years that aren't recorded for us in the Scriptures. But nevertheless, the angels have watched and listened with close interest as the babe, the boy, the teenager, the man, walked among men, did so much good. But what gripped their heart, their attention at this stage is the conflict between the Christ and Satan. Remember, he's 30 years of age now. Oh, they know now in heaven about the fall of man. So interest is growing now that a new conflict is about to take place. The Son of God is going now to meet with Satan in a waste, howling wilderness after he had fasted right down to the level of starvation. Remember, 40 days without food. He'd be, humanly speaking, physically drained of energy. Luke 4 and Matthew 4 uh, both relate the, the Savior's temptation in the wilderness. But I wonder if we fully realize the condition the Lord was in at the time. His strength must have been all but gone. Having hungered for that length of time, his physical life must have been hanging by a thread. And in that condition, an ordinary man would more than likely have given in to anything at the prospect of having something to eat. irrespective of where it came from. You know that the devil tempted him, turn those stones into bread. You're hungry. You need to eat. How ah, this was no ordinary man. This was the God man. 
Lying behind Jericho is the Jordan Valley. It lies well below sea level, and in the middle of it there rises up this mount where this temptation occurred. The higher you climb the hill, the more aware you become of the, the, the utter barrenness of the surrounding countryside. It's just nothing to be seen. There's no vegetation. It's all stony ground, dry and dusty. And so it was there that Satan came against Christ with these three temptations. The same three, incidentally, that he came before Eve with in the Garden of Eden. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life. And because the Savior is now physically starving with hunger, Satan tries to tempt him, change the stones into bread. Yes, he needed food at this point. But being God, he's able to resist the devil's temptation. Because the, the Savior is who he is, he's able to say no. Then taking, taking him to a high mountain, the devil had him view the kingdom of the world. And he said, I'll give you all these if you'll just worship me. He was seriously underestimating the power of Christ to resist temptation to sin. Christ cannot sin, neither can he be tempted to sin. Now, how puffed up with himself Satan really was to think that the Son of God would bow to him. It's true, of course, Satan is the God of this world, but the Lord Jesus will never bow to him. In fact, one of these days, Satan will bow to Christ, and he will acknowledge that he is Lord of all. We are living in a day where the spirit of Antichrist is all around us. Good is called evil, evil is called good. People are going out of their way, as we mentioned this morning, going out of their way to be offended these days. I mean, consider some of the, the awful goings-on, even in this province, the murder of the unborn, gender issues, conversion therapy. What, what corruption there is in our society. Society, you know, today is, unless the Lord steps in, our society is rearing children for hell. And beloved, it's sad to say there's just no fear of God. This, our society is bitterly opposed to Christ and to his gospel. And but then this is how it's to be as we approach our Savior's return. In the third instance there in the, in, the, in the wilderness, the devil brought the Savior to the city where he tried to have him jump down from the pinnacle of the temple. Of course, he wanted him to jump to his death. And again, Satan's scheme failed. The angels, however, didn't get involved in those temptations because it wasn't until the devil was defeated that they moved in to strengthen the now exhausted Savior. Matthew 4.11 reads, Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. They certainly were desirous uh, to look into how he had triumphed over the adversary, especially under such trying conditions. James 4 and 7 reads, 
resist the devil and he will flee from you. And Christ was able to do that. This was truly the God-man. He had endured physical, moral, even spiritual temptation and had triumphed over it all. And how this caused great curiosity among the angels. And again, we might suppose that when those ministering angels returned to heaven, their colleagues may well have been asking, well, who came to help the Savior this time? Who was there to stand with him? Did his family members come and support him? Were his friends there when he needed them? When they're told that he had to endure it all alone, they must have wondered, what sort of man is this, Jesus? Or what sort of people are those people on earth? Beloved, he is the one who endured all temptation and overcame the power of the devil so that he could bring that same victory to you and me. Aren't we forever being tempted by Satan to one sin or another? How could we ever resist if Christ had been a failure? It wouldn't be possible. But thank God he did. He did resist, and that's why he can give you victory when temptation comes your way. The Christian can resist the devil in the name of Christ and no blessed deliverance of the unsaved. Well, you can take encouragement in this because he's able to deliver you when temptation comes. If you just cast yourself upon him. I mean, why should you give in to temptation and sin your soul when the Lord is at hand to deliver? You need to cry to God for grace to resist the devil. Come and receive Christ as your great deliverer. And you know when the best time to do it is? Right now. Right now. Tomorrow may be too late. Genesis 6 and 3 reminds us, God says, My spirit shall not always strive with man. And if the Lord has been challenging your heart, you're not saved and you know it, you know you need to be saved. You'd, maybe you'd like to be saved, but you keep putting it off. God says, beware. Don't miss your opportunity. Come now. Let's move on. There's another thought. The cloister in Gethsemane, just outside Jerusalem. You've Mount Olivet. I'm sure some of you have been there. Mount of Olives. That enclosed garden that forms a a natural retreat from the pressures of life. It's a place where the Savior loved to go just to withdraw himself from his busy schedule. And a very suitable place for anyone wishing to spend time alone in private meditation and prayer with the Father in heaven. Mark fourteen thirty three has it that he taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And that expression, very heavy, means deeply weighed down. You see, only a, only a short time previous to this, our Savior was there singing a hymn in that upper room. But now in the garden, he's weighed down with anxiety, not because of himself or because of his own circumstances, but because of your sin and mine. He was overwhelmed 
by the wrath of God against our sin, sin that he was going to take upon himself. He was preparing to endure the wrath of God that was due to you and me because of our sin. This is the Savior. This is the one who couldn't sin. And he was going to do that for us. There's an old hymn that captures the thought like this, O Lord, what thee tormented was our sin's heavy load. We had the debt augmented which thou must pay in blood. And the angels desire to look into this, for it was, it was all beyond their understanding. Their beloved, so identified with all the horror and wickedness of our sin, as to actually be made sin for us. Such was his agony of soul, they actually sweated drops of blood. Hematidrosis, I think they call it. He, he came close to death in that garden. Yet he mustn't die there, not in Gethsemane. He must go to the hill crag of Calvary. It's not that far away from the garden, but he's got to make it to that hill. And again, the angels ministered unto them and then returned on high. And again, we can just imagine the conversation when they go back to heaven. Some would ask, well, who was there to help him in his anguish in the garden? Did his friends stick with him? What do you mean, alone? Was there not a single one of Adam's fallen race to, to wipe the sweat of his brow or hold up his hand and support? Didn't he have three friends? With, oh, yes, he had three friends. They fell asleep. Beloved, listen. Here was the Son of God on death row. And it was your sin and mine that put him there. Now, have you fallen asleep? Is it nothing to you that you're the one who should have been crucified, not him? Yet he took your place. No wonder the angels are curious. But can you be unconcerned? There's another thought here, the cross itself at Calvary. The angels watched and listened. As men in their kangaroo court blindfolded the Lord Jesus, punched him in the face, crowned him with ugly thorns, plowed his back open with the cat of nine tails. Huh, they proclaimed him guiltless, yet they condemned him as though he were a felon, marched him up that hillside where they spiked him to that old cross. And the angels waited watched and waited, just one word from him, and they would be there to deliver him. Well, the one word never came. And they stood there on heaven's balcony, watching down in utter amazement as he took the scorn and the ridicule. They watched and waited, but he died without ever asking for their aid. Well, they saw his friends come and take his broken body and lay it reverently in the tomb with their fragrant spices. They saw that heavy stone being rolled across the door where the soldiers came to make sure nobody would tamper with it. And earth went through three sunsets 
dark dreary nights while his incorruptible body lay in that crypt dug into the rock face but then it happened the conqueror returned unseen by the guards untouched by the faintest hint of decay he shed the grave clothes and walked through that tightly sealed door and vanished then two angels came probably Michael and Gabriel broke the seal on that great stone and rolled it to the one side not to let the saviour out but to let people in to see that he was already gone And the two angels sat down and waited. What were they waiting for? Waiting to see all his disciples coming to the tomb to see his glorious resurrection. He had told them he would rise again. But they didn't come. Oh, a couple of women came. They were coming with more spices for his dead body. They didn't expect to find him gone. What was wrong with these people? Didn't anybody believe that he would rise again when he said he would? And again, two angels go back to heaven to report, alas, his friends are all at a loss. None of them came to see him risen. In fact, one of the women talked with him and didn't even recognize him, thought he was a gardener. And the angels marvel at the unbelief, the stubbornness of people's hearts. You believe it? Of course you do. But have you come to place your dependence for eternity upon him? Or are you still rejecting him? After all he's been through. Are you still saying, no, it's nothing to me that he died for my sin. I want to enjoy my sin, just leave me alone. Don't think for one minute, beloved, that somehow you'll arrive in heaven by your own efforts. It'll not happen. The angels desire to look into the cradle in the hay, the conflict in the wilderness, the cloister in the garden, the cross at Calvary. Lastly and briefly, is the concealment in the clouds. Verses 11 and 12 read here, Searching what? Or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you by the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven which things the angels desire to look into. The angels are curious to understand why all this happened? They're curious tonight to understand why you should still be rejecting the Savior. What is it about sin that you won't let go and embrace Christ? It's not His will that you should perish, but that you should come to repentance. He did this so that you wouldn't have to end up in hell. There's no other way for you and me to make heaven. 
This was the only way. This was the only sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. There's no hope for any soul outside of Christ and his finished work. Your hope for eternity lies here. When God came down among his people in the wilderness in Old Testament times, he wrapped himself with the most unusual cloud. They called it the Shekinah glory. That cloud sat upon the mercy seat in the temple. That was back then. Now, the cloud was back, swirling over the Mount of Olives. Forty days and nights have passed since his resurrection and now this cloud is just waiting to receive him and transport him back to glory and the angels who had been arrayed in the night sky to welcome his birth now waited to receive him back home his work was done and strangely enough he wasn't alone this time. Something like 120 of his followers were standing there with him. And on that mount, he raised his hands, pronounced his benediction upon his people, and silently, suddenly, began to ascend. And he was gone. Back to glory. And as you might have guessed, two of his angels were standing by. But their word of glad assurance to the people standing looking up was, he'd be back again. And at that, they too were gone. Those two went back and rejoined that great company on high to welcome the Savior back to his place in heaven, saw him sat down on the throne in heaven. He's seated now because his work is done, which means there's nothing left for you to do but receive the gift of God, which is everlasting life. What a journey it had been for him. What an experience. You know, the angels are still talking about it in heaven. Yet, down here on earth, it's so difficult to get people interested. Why is this? Are the angels aghast tonight? Because some poor soul in Ulster, in Hillsborough, or watching online, they're saying, ah, I've heard it all before. Not interested in having Christ as my Savior. Beloved, an attitude like that, you know what that's doing? That's volunteering for hell. Forever. This is your only hope. Are the angels flabbergasted because of the hardness of your heart that you won't say, give me this Jesus or I perish? Is his amazing work of redemption to be lost on you? Because you won't finish with sin and trust him to be your savior? Beloved, 
There's no hope anywhere else. Salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast. Nobody gets to heaven by doing the best he can. It doesn't happen. By all means, do the best you can, but it'll never save you. Take Christ as your Savior first. Then go out and do the best you can. Win others. I mean, let's face it. How long do you get in this life? We've heard of a dear brother celebrating his 100th birthday. There's not many get that far. Some don't see the half of it. Well, what if you did get 100? What if you lived to be 200? Which is not going to happen. But what if you did? What's 200 years compared to eternity? That'll never end. Our finite minds can't begin to think something will never end. Well, eternity never ends. And so where you are in eternity is everything, isn't it? So will it be for you eternity forever with Christ, where there's no more sin, no more devil to tempt you, nothing to grieve? Or will it be with the devil that you listened to when you should have rejected him, but you gave in to his temptation to put off getting saved? To be banished to the pit of darkness, the lake of fire, forever? You see the choice? It's a choice you've got to make. As we said earlier, the time to make that choice is now. Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. I hope you live to see Christmas, but we don't know, do we? There are people in eternity right now who were still alive when this meeting commenced. Something like 5,000 souls every hour leave this life. What if you're one of the next? Isn't it everything to be ready? I pray God give you the grace to finish with sin now and trust Christ to be your Savior. God give you that grace. Don't miss it for anything or for anybody.